Welcome! You are listening to Feel Free to Deviate, the podcast about people, their careers, and their relationships with success. You are also listening to me, Jim Turbert. I am the host. How many of us can say that their name is as cool as their title? How many people would even be in a position to argue about it? This episode features Jonas Wolf, Doctor of Computer Vision. He is a super genius who wants to make computers see. I suppose that either sounds awesome or terrifying, but seeing as you're probably listening to this podcast on a tiny supercomputer with at least one giant electronic eye, you should probably check your paranoia at the door and listen to Jonas's story. I invited Jonas not because of his high level of academic achievement and cool name, but because of the whole Jonas package. He's a super nice guy who is also a highly accomplished academic, who is also in demand in the commercial sector. He is also a family man family man who achieves. And perhaps best of all, he has options. He's pretty much nailing it. To me, two of the most valuable things in the world are time and options, and he is certainly rich in options, which is the cornerstone of why I think of him as a successful person. I don't recall asking him about time, but I'm guessing he has more options than time. Still, whenever I talk to him, it's hard for me to stop thinking, this guy really has his together. This just in. Oliballen are coming back. Yeah, I know. This is coming out of nowhere, and you probably don't know what an Oliball is, but I'm going to tell you. It's basically a blob of deep-fried, yeasty dough. I like to get mine with currants. That might not sound great to you, but it's sort of the grandfather of the donut. It's crispy on the outside and soft on the inside, and the family that sells them in my neighborhood has won the best Oliballen award maybe 15 times in the last 20 years. Generally, they sell them in the street from November until the end of January, but last year... They started early, and I'm overjoyed to see that they are starting early again this year as well. They are exceptionally delicious, and once they start selling them, I will post something about it on Instagram so you can see what the deal is for yourself. Speaking of, you should follow the show on Instagram and share it with your friends. I'm not begging, you don't have to, but I think it would be cool if you did. If you're interested, the account is at Feel Free to Deviate, which is also the name of this show. Go check it out and like something. Better yet, leave a comment. It's nice to know who's out there. Now, put on your augmented reality goggles, kick back, and listen to my conversation with the good doctor, Jonas Wolf. Jonas Wolf, I've asked you here today because I consider you a successful person. Not only have you fulfilled societal expectations, but you are an expert in a field that many, if not most, would consider interesting, perhaps threatening, arguably important. You're a coffee connoisseur, you're a smart guy, you're incredibly knowledgeable, and you're in high demand in your field. You are a doctor of computer vision. Thank you for talking to me today on Feel Free to Deviate. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. I think doctor of computer vision is mostly correct. I think officially it's doctor of computer science. Doctor of computer, okay. Because that's the department of computer science that gives out the degree. Right. And computer vision is the one subfield that. I guess everybody's talking about that. But that's what you guys call it. We we call yeah. I mean, we call what we do is computer vision because com, you know, computer science is so so great. If you say, you know, you have a degree in art, but what you do is photography, right? So it's kind of the same thing. There's not like a like a kneecap is a patella. Is there more special scientific terms for doctor of computer vision or is it straight up computer vision? It's straight up computer vision and then within computer vision you have sort of a whole bunch of individual fields and people bounce back and forth between the fields it's probably more like i'm just thinking like if you have 
well, I guess you can have a doctor of history. So history would be like computer science and then you have your medieval history or whatever is your right. specialty. And then within that, you can kind of look at different things and write papers about different topics and people and so on. And I think it's similar. Computer science is the, I guess, would be yeah, the department or... It's the banner. The, the general, yeah, the general banner. And then computer vision is what we do. And then the individual subfields is, okay, what, what are we looking at at the moment? I think most people in in computer vision could fairly quickly kind of switch between those different subfields within computer vision. Right. Now, this is this is an important question. Do you ever insist that people call you Dr. Wolf? No. I I think I used it once, but only when I just got my PhD, I used it on some address label like I subscribed to a magazine as Dr. Nuswolf just to just for the kicks. But no. To post it on social. <laughs> my, my Facebook says, you know, I'm, a, I'm a doctor, <laughs> but not the type that helps people. You should try getting restaurant reservations. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I don't know. I don't remember. Maybe I used it like once if I wanted to get something and it didn't work. So yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I think it's, it's very much different from country to country. Uh-huh. You know, in Germany, people would use the title much more, much more reliably than here. Oh. I, uh-huh. I thought it varied from person to person. There are some people who insist on being recognized for their years and years of dedication to higher learning. I think it's more the opposite. I feel like whenever somebody insists on being called a doctor. Dr. Jill Biden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, often like at least within academia, like if somebody insists on being called professor mm-hmm. or, you know, or doctor or whatever, I don't know, that kind of speaks to a not entire sort of self-confidence in the field i feel oh it's like buying a lamborghini a little bit a little bit it's like the academic lamborghini are three letters or four letters although i i read somewhere it would be good to insist on it a little bit more i think especially with women you know people use first names and that's kind of like equal and it's different whether your your pi is a woman or a man and so it would actually be more equitable for for everyone to use the titles yeah I feel like I heard an anecdote sometime, one time about a lady at a conference who was arguing with somebody and the, the man that she was arguing with threw out her paper as evidence mm-hmm. of, of what he was trying to prove. And she was like, that's me. Yeah. Yeah. You, you hear that a lot. You're like, you're trying to prove your argument by quoting me. Uh-huh. <laughs> totally. No, that, that you, you hear these stories about the man who say, yeah, you know, you, you should really do your research as Meyer and all showed blah, blah, blah. And then the woman is like, well, I am Meyer in Meyer at all. So, so good. <laughs> it's so unfortunate. It's so unfortunate. I've definitely experienced that, you know, in meetings where a female colleague of mine and me were kind of talking about mostly her work. Yeah. And the, whatever the people we were talking to, were talking to me yeah. as it was my work. And it's so, I'm sure it's very frustrating. It is. It is very frustrating. I mean, it's frustrating for me. It's infinitely more frustrating for her. Right. Of course. Since that experience, I always try to like, whenever people, you know, send email to me as the male co-author of a female led paper. Yeah. I always try to get back to look, this is XYZ's work. She has more authority to speak on this. Nice. That's very good. That's great. I like to hear that. Computer science in particular is so male dominated. It's very. It's not something that I was ever confronted with, but I have to say my lady is a a designer and she deals with that kind of thing all the time Mm -hmm. in a room full of men. 
one of her former employers actually said to her, it's a man's world. She was pretty happy about that. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Is he, <laughs> I mean, I, I hope for his sake, he's, he still has his head. He's doing just fine. Shame. Don't worry about him. It's kind of amazing to hear these stories, knowing how competent and, and skilled she is and I and the, just the stuff that she has to deal with. And yeah. in that regard, it's just, it's just mind-blowing. I, uh, I wish it was different. Well, we just have to sort of keep keep doing our part, I guess. <laughs> right. I'm not sure what my part is, but sure I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to get some more ladies on the show. Well, <laughs> she won't do it, though. She won't. <laughs> no, nah. she won't. She says she's scared to be on the microphone, which makes sense, I guess, because I know that she does have she has certain reservations about making presentations and stuff. And I would imagine that once there's a, a microphone involved, then it could be different but i mean it's i'm here too it's it'll be just like talking to me what if you left the editing to her she doesn't have time for that she's actually an employed busy person (laughs) (laughs) she's got stuff to do (laughs) oh man she's got no time for podcasts podcasts are for unemployed dudes no it's an employment it definitely keeps me busy and i'm glad that i'm doing it and i am actually i was going to talk about this later i'm sort of that's how i'm identifying right now but i wanted to talk about I think that you are a successful person, not only because you've achieved this lofty title of doctor of computer vision, which is really cool, but you've worked in academia. You are highly desired in the commercial realm of of, of this field. It's just impressive. You're a good guy. You're well-grounded. It's hard for me to imagine a nicer guy. I mean, you're one of the nicest guys I know. It's really, it's really impressive. And it seems like you're happy, not like I'm always happy, but it just seems like you have, have reached some sort of contentment in your life and you have options, which to me is pretty great. Options are nice, right? Definitely. Definitely. Well, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) When I asked you before, if you thought of yourself as a successful person, you started off saying no, and I'm not sure (laughs) if that, (laughs) yeah, And, and I'm not sure if that's modesty or if, why don't you just tell me if you think you're a successful person or not? My first gut response would still be no. But I think it depends on what's your no, what's your measure of success? What's your measure of success? Well, in particular in academia, right? Success is measured by having a fancy faculty position at a nice university. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I don't have that. So <laughs> I don't know. Success is often seen as your standout, whatever. So it's often seen as your kind of leader or okay, it's hollower than your peers. Like you know what what you what you would say in where is that in Denmark or so? They have this term of the poppy poppy seed thing that kind of if you have a field of plants and one is taller, that just gets chopped off. Oh yeah, yeah. I think they say something like that in Japan as well. The, the taller ones are traditionally seen as like the successful ones. And that's very much not, not how I see myself. Okay. But I think there are, you know, there are other, definitely other measures of, of success where you say, well, you're a functioning family. Yep. For example, you, you enjoy your family. I think a lot of, a lot of that is like your own, you know, your own attitude. Like you enjoy what you're doing. Yeah. You enjoy where you're living. You, you have a good relationship with your kids and you enjoy that relationship. And it, it's almost a sense of, normalcy and kind of non-drama i think that can be a sense of success too and by that measure i guess i guess i'm successful i don't know hard to say that it it sounds like you might have a hard time saying it 
Uh, yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, hard to say it in that it, it hurts to, you know, it does not roll off my tongue very smoothly. Right. You're talking about in the academic field, there's mm-hmm. some guy that's a superstar, Mr. Dr. Science. Professor Dr. Science. <laughs> Professor Dr. Science. If that's what the people in your field view as being successful, if you look at it from a through a different lens, if you look at it through the, the lens of everybody else, mm-hmm. you're a doctor. That is so hard. To look through someone else's eyes. Because we, we all live in our bubbles. That's true. It is so weird because you start out going to grad school. The average of the people you're surrounded with is higher than your own standing. Because you're the first year PhD student, while you have a bunch of postdocs and you have a bunch of professors. So the average of these people is definitely above PhD. Because of experience. Well, just because of, you know, they're further along in their career and and so on. But it's sort of, you're forgetting about everybody else who didn't even consider grad school. Yeah, exactly. It's so something that's very important to kind of remind yourself of that even if I'm in the middle of grad school and I'm having a hard time right now and I feel I'm not successful I'm or whatever, or not not doing anything or I, I can't do anything, I'm such a failure, da, 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 da. like all the, you know, all this mental talk that mm-hmm. goes on there. Who are you comparing yourself to? You're comparing yourself to your immediate peers, yeah. but you're not comparing yourself to like everybody. I guess there is a flip side to that. If you say, well, you know, who's, who's this everybody you compare yourself with? Everybody in the world, then nobody in, in the first world could, could make a statement about anything anyway. So who, who do you compare yourself to, right? And who right now just happened to be the person you compare yourself to that happened to be more successful than, than you? And how much is it just because you are rising through the ranks that, of course, your bubble gets smaller and more selective? Right. That's true. Of course, that's inevitable to happen with everything and anything, whether you work at the post office or in the computer vision department in Tumingen or MIT or wherever. What about you're, you're OK, you're talking about considering yourself a success in this bubble of academia, but defining the goal to get into the program and follow through until you get your master's degree and then you do your doctorate and you do whatever postdoc work that you do. That's that's something, right? Just setting the goals and meeting the goals. Wouldn't you say that setting the goals and meeting the goals is some sort of a success? Because you could talk to 20 people on the street and maybe they don't care about doctors or, or grad school or any education at all. That to them wouldn't mean success. But if you talk to them about having something in mind that they wanted to accomplish, mm-hmm. Could that be the goal? And I ask because the last guy that I talked to concisely said said something that I have adopted as my definition of success. <laughs> it's actually his, Thomas K. Thank you very much. Success is the degree to which you live intentionally. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I think that's that's one part. That it, it is one part, right? It's the part that I like. It's kind of yeah, I mean a sense of sort of control over your own your own life, more like mental control, I guess. Yeah. He also said that he didn't think he was successful. I'm not going to say this definitively, but most of the people that I've talked to thus far are reluctant to say, yes, I'm successful. And then they'll talk about things that they're successful at and things that they, they're short, some of their shortcomings. Mm-hmm. And it is starting to become obvious to me that most people don't think of themselves as successful, no matter who they are, which is why people like the multi-billionaires of the world keep earning more money yeah. because for them, success is money or whatever comes with all that money. So it only makes logical sense to make more of it. 
if you're a fighter, then logic says that you must become the champion or you fight till you can no longer fight any longer. Yeah. And it's a very similar thing to this idea of the gradually smaller getting bubbles, right? Mm -hmm. Because even if you say, okay, well, your first goal was get into grad school. Well, great. You got that. Yeah. Okay, now you're you're kind of you, you're feeling successful in the small time span between getting your acceptance letter and actually starting grad school. Yeah. Because as soon as you start grad school, well, now there's the goal to graduate. Sure. And you're surrounded by all these postdoc people and all these other people that are Well, and and also, I mean, the goal keeps moving. Sure. And I think that's maybe a more helpful definition of success is not to say, okay, you know, success is not an end state that I want to reach, but it's kind of you know, whatever the cliche is, I don't know the exact English phrase, but like the journey, you know, the, the journey is the goal. Okay, right on. You're not successful because you have achieved certain things or a certain title or a certain something. Yeah, success is not a, it's not a point on a map, but it's sort of enjoying the way to get there. The point on the map is just, you know, it's just an arbitrary point, but on the way there, do you have a good time? So then maybe a form of success is also being able to start out at a point where that journey is fun. That's that's always like you can say, okay, well, you know, I want to go from from point A to point B. Well, it's good. Maybe I maybe my point A is such that the journey from A to B is actually fun. But maybe my point A is such that the journey from A to B sucks. And then if somebody tells you like, oh, you know, you should just enjoy what you're doing because that's the point of like that. Then also like maybe you are at a point where just that journey is not fun. And I think that has to be acknowledged too. In that case, going from A to B would be the opposite of success, would be failure. Mm. It still has value, of course. It still it still has value. I think then why do you want to go to B? Do you want to B because then then there is a C after B where going from B to C is fun. You know, I, I feel like I need a whiteboard somewhere here. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it's, is your everyday enjoyable for the most part? Of course, you know, people are going to have bad days. Is what you're doing on an everyday basis generally something you like to do? Instead of enjoyable or using the word happiness, I think a sense of satisfaction or, or fulfillment. Fulfillment yeah. or, or whatever. Does it, you know, does it not burn you out? Of course, it could burn you out because you don't like it, yet you're feeding your family and you enjoy them. It's another point I would be reluctant about like saying success is fully measured in terms of jobs and jobs are so we we put so much of our identity and our sense of worth into what our work is we really do and i don't know do we have to do that really how do you identify then i would imagine that it comes up in conversations at your kid's school i talk about this sometimes it happens to me all the time do you identify with your title? Do you identify with your job? Or are you just Jonas Wolf, the guy? <laughs> I'm the guy. Hey, who, who are, who are, nice to meet you. Who are you? I'm the guy. I think it depends on the context. Right. If you're, I guess if you're at a conference or something. Yeah. Or even if I'm at some, some gathering at MIT and people ask, who are you? Then I'd be, I'm a postdoc at such and such. Because that's the coordinate system that helps them understand where I am. They put you in place where you are in the universe. I mean, that's that's the whole point, right? Uh, well, it's not just who, where you are in the universe, but also like, how do I relate to this other person? Or what can we talk about? Or what can we talk about? Yeah. For instance, that guy, if the two of us were at a party and I introduced myself as the support guy, you would be like, okay, we will not be talking about A, B, or C. Well, 
Maybe, but I would probably ask you about the most weird experience you've had in support. I'm sure you have more weird stories than I do. There are some, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I would probably ask you a lot of questions, which I will be doing. I have a couple of questions. Identifying with one's job is something that I'm trying to avoid, but I think I'm starting to identify myself as a podcaster, partially because I am unemployed and that is not something to brag about. And when you tell someone that you're unemployed, they immediately feel bad. Yeah. And that changes the whole vibe. Sure, sure. And with certain things, you feel bad. With other things, you just don't feel, I don't know, like one of my hobbies, I, I play music. I would never identify as a musician because that seems so like, no, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, it's it's just a hobby, right? And I, of course, if somebody asked me, I would identify as a researcher. Okay. Oh, all right. Right on. Um, And then... And then depending on what their interest is, you know, it's different. Like if somebody's an artist, I would say, well, you know, I work with these generative networks that draw photos, blah, 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 whatever. Being a researcher is sort of a, is maybe something that is partially a job, but also partially a mindset. Right. Uh, yeah, it sounds, sounds a little like, ugh. It sounds fine. It sounds fine. I think it's right. I think it's true. I mean, it is a mindset. I mean, not everyone can do it. Not everybody cares enough to find out the secrets. I think it's it's mostly about curiosity. Yeah. Like saying like, oh, why, why, is, why is this? Why, you know? Not everybody has that. And that's, that, that's, not a, that's not a condemnation of people who don't have it. It's just it takes all types. Some people have to figure things out. Some people have to do other stuff. It, it's just how it is. And that's why some people are researchers and some people aren't. Most people, in fact. Although I'm not a researcher, but I research stuff. I figured out how to make a podcast. Sure. And, you know, you you take apart cameras and I do. VCRs and stuff. So I do. That's not, not too different. Not so much VCRs anymore, though. Oh. Haven't seen one of those for eons. <laughs> Sometimes it's overwhelming when you take something apart and then you're like, I shouldn't have done that. But it's also fun. It is. It is. It is. So many things that I had to throw away after I broke them irreparably. <laughs> after you tried. tried after I them. tried to fix it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but whatever. Most of the time, there's not much of a danger. Yeah. And you feel like a superhero when you actually fix it. I know. That, that's like the best. It best really is the best. Fix something. And then, you're, then you go to whoever, your friend, your lady, your coworker. And you're, yeah, I fixed it. It's good. We, I just saved you 50 bucks or whatever, oh, no. <laughs> or whatever it costs for whatever you fixed. That's, it's great. It's great. And it's something like doing with your hands that's actually useful. Indeed. When you think of successful people, who do you think of immediately? Huh. I think I still have ingrained the classical, you know, as I said, good faculty. Yeah. For me, I think if they enjoy what they're doing, if they seem like a happy person, Before I came to MIT, I visited a bunch of the big, good U.S. schools. And there were a few great schools, great scientific output, but everybody seemed so stressed and so unhappy. I can imagine. I mean, sure, maybe you write the papers, but you you guys don't seem, you don't seem chill. What are you getting out of this? Exactly. What what are you getting out of it? Are you just doing it for the recognition? You know, are you just doing it to then have some, some idea to build a startup on or whatever? That's a good question. I'd like to know what people's motivation is. What was your motivation for going for a doctorate of computer vision? How many times am I going to say that? Doctorate, doctor of computer vision. Yeah, yeah. Can you like find some acronym? I might make a tally and post it on social media. <laughs> it's, it's become a drinking game. <laughs> I just enjoyed working in the field. But how did you get interested in it? Way back, way back in high school. Oh, really? That long ago? 
Yeah, that long ago. I think I got interested at first through the 3D modeling stuff. I grew up end of the 90s, played a lot of computer games, and then started to you know, take these games apart and look at the 3D models of the characters and the weapons and what have you, and started making my own. I think through that, I became interested in graphics, 3D stuff. And then during my undergrad, I actually worked for basically four out of the five years. I worked as a student research assistant at a computer vision lab doing mostly medical, medical computer vision. It was just fun. And it's nice because it has, it has a little bit of everything. You know, it has, you have the, you have the math part, you have the programming part, but then you also have just a lot of pretty pictures that come out. Sure, sure, of course. Yeah, that's nice. If you have if you have results you can look at and they look cool. And also everybody else thinks they look cool too. Well, sometimes <laughs> there's a know, lot of sub there's a large subsection of people who think they are also cool. Yeah, yeah, at least you know you can show it and if you say I have some some bladder image and now you can see the tumor more clearly than in this other bladder image. Yeah, well, yeah. that's that's great. That's fun. And I kind of kept doing that. I did the research for my final thesis in Aachen. I actually came to Boston, did it at MIT, worked more on the neuroscience side a little bit. Well, actually applied to grad school at MIT, did not get in, then went to tubing instead. Oh, that's why you went to tubing in. Okay. So they were just building up the Max Planck Institute there. I think I started in November and the, the institute was founded in April or something of that year. Okay. So when I came, there was the whole... There were boxes in the hallway... A lot of boxes. Yeah, it was two rooms. It was Well, it was three rooms, one for the students, one for the staff, and one for the PI. That's kind of it. Right on. And that, and it was, that was great to kind of see the department grow. And Sure. There was a lot, lot of fun there. Well, I imagine you felt a part of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Ultimately, you have as much input as you want to give. It was just great seeing the process and, of course, like in a way shaping the culture a little bit. Sure. It was fun. I loved the time in tubing. It was great. It seems like the kind of place where there aren't a lot of distractions. You go there, you do your thing, you focus wholeheartedly, uh -huh. and then you move on to whatever the next step is. Or you stay there. I mean, you could have stayed there, right? I guess I probably could have, but Tübingen is a small city. I was there. Yeah, I know. So it was also time to go somewhere else. And then yeah. Sandra had to, had to move back to Massachusetts, so sure. we went to Boston. There are family considerations, of course. Absolutely. Speaking of family considerations, what was it like growing up? Did you did you have pressure from your parents? Did they thrust their expectations on you? No. Expectations of a success or anything? Or, or no. yeah, how does that go? Not not at all. I don't really know what they did. My my siblings and me were all pretty good at school to the point where we said, okay, if if we bring home a bad grade, we go out for ice cream. <laughs> like that was that was the point and we were like we we're never for example we we're never rewarded for for grades i think the point was always you do it because you're you're interested in in the material sure you know and then whatever grade you get you get but but it's not the label that you get for it at the end is isn't the point it's what you get out of it you know how much you enjoy the process i mean i think there there was one situation where it was pretty clear that i was better than was reflected in my grade mm -hmm. and that was just whatever just like a slacking off thing and oh, okay all right but then it's also something that that i was unhappy at myself for sure you know for getting like the bad grade and then then my mom set us down and da, da, da. but there was never any expectations or any sense of you have to do this or you have to do this or not this or not that so 
Was there support for your interests, you know, in high school when you were first discovering this 3D, 3D stuff? And well, yeah, that, that was definitely in, in Germany. I don't know if they have that in Netherlands too. There's like a, a competition of high school students, a science competition. Okay. Where you write your report, build something, do something cool, and then you advance to the state level and to the national level and so on. So sure. Like, yeah, like a science fair. I don't know if there's something like that here. I assume that there probably is. And I did that a couple times. Oh, nice. Um, like I, I built a small stereoscopic camera that could cool. detect in 3D. So that was that was fun. They totally encouraged that. They were always interested in getting me an understanding. So, you know, it's always the question, well, when, when do you get your first computer as a kid, right? Right. Something that my parents said is, okay, you get your first computer if you can program it. What? You don't get it to play games. You That's pretty hardcore. Yeah, but it's great. And sure. the, the, well, the, the point being is we give you this machine if you command the machine, if the machine does not command you. That's so crazy. That's great. Well, and so, you know, I went out, I got, I got a loaner computer from my high school. Yeah. I programmed a little DOS boot manager thing back in the old days. And there was also this, do you remember Nibbles, like the QBasic? It's no. like Snake. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. In, in the old QBasic, there was like one with a snake. So what a friend of mine and me actually did was go in, take apart the source code and kind of build 10 new levels for this thing in basic code. That's great. And that was fun. And I think those two projects kind of qualified as, okay, I, I kind of know. For, well, it qualifies for me. Yeah, I have in, enough technical interest and then I got a computer. That is super cool. I really like that story a lot. I had a TRS-80 from from Radio Shack. It was a very, very low-powered computer. And I just remember sitting there typing code from a lesson book or whatever. And it took forever. And then the little turtle, I think they called it, you know, mm-hmm. when you mm-hmm. could draw a triangle or whatever. Yeah, I lost interest pretty quickly. That's one of, <laughs> one of the many differences between you and me. I think there, you know, there's a multitude of, of factors. How much are you interested in? But then also, what's the, the support you get? Like, I had a great teacher who would kind of then oh. really push us through these projects. You did. You had a like a teacher, a mentor in school. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really great. I like to hear that story, too. Yeah. I've always wanted a mentor. Yeah, no, it was. Always. You know, like, I, I've always had issues with particularly male authority figures. <laughs> but also, I always felt like a lot of my friends would latch on to a teacher and and they would have this mentorship relationship, and I just never had it. Mm. So it's kind of one of those things that I, I've, I've longed for. But there's nothing I can do about it now. Well, I don't know. I, I guess... That ship has sailed. I, I wouldn't say that. No, I can get a mentor still. Will you be my mentor? <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> See, but, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, I think it's, it's just because it's maybe a less formal relationship i mean obviously we have these formal mentors like we have teachers and supervisors and blah 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 but right now i don't have that anymore but i'm kind of not willing to give that up so you know i think you just have to more you know you have to puzzle together your your mentors and maybe it's not one but it's several people that you kind of go to for advice or things like that i think just because it's it's maybe less formal it doesn't doesn't make it less of a thing that's something to think about so after to begin Am I saying that correctly? Tubing in? Tubing in, yes. Tubing in. You went back to Boston. Correct. Actually to MIT. To MIT, yes, as a postdoc. You had to make the decision whether you stayed in, in academia or you went off to more lucrative fields. I think the plan was mostly always to stay in academia. Okay. But that's also kind of the default. 
So I don't know if that was really my plan or if that was just the plan that was sort of implanted in me. The trajectory. The, the yeah, no, it's it's just like well, that's 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 what you do: have breakfast in the morning and then you go out get a faculty job, whatever. <laughs> so so yeah, I was there for three years. I mean, technically, I still am there. Oh, so I'm still I'm still working for MIT right now. Okay, but it's kind of my last weeks. I know you're you've moved to the West Coast. What are you there for? I'll I'll be joining a startup. Uh-huh. You know, to see something else. Um, and it's a fun group of people that I've known for two years or so. Okay. You know some of them from school, from MIT. They kind of contacted me out of the blue, and then I began hanging out with them in Cambridge. Oh, right on. Um, which was, you know, which was great. That sounds nice. Yeah, and so they have this this little startup, which is sort of like a research think tank. So it's not a, it's still very academic. Mm-hmm. But they're completely remote, and that's that's one reason why we could move here just for you know for Sandra's family. Right, they're here, and and so we decided, you know, been in Boston for three years, so now give it a uh, shot. Now let's, and all her family's here. My family's in Germany. We always thought Boston would be kind of a good middle ground, mm-hmm. but in the end, Boston ends up to be far from either. <laughs> right, if you're going to be far away. <laughs> If you're flying for seven hours or for 10 hours is not actually that much of a difference. It really isn't. And on the other hand, now, we, you know, we can just drive down to family. And, and you're in sunshine. And we're in sunshine. Well, we're in sunshine, but also in utter heat. But it's the home of good moods. Kind of. And driving. And driving. So much driving, right? A lot of driving. Yep. It's actually okay. I think you get used to it. Currently, I'm used to not driving ever. At all. Yeah. And I love it. It is nice. Like there, there were there were a few weekends where I was just missing it. I'm mm-hmm. um, just like maybe Sandra is visiting her parents, and I'm here. And okay, I don't have a car, so uh, what can I do? I need to get a bike. Isn't riding your bike anywhere in Los Angeles? Isn't that S- suicide? Like, aren't the distances just so great and also also suicidal? <laughs> um, there are, no, there are actually some nice places close by here. We're pretty close to downtown LA. I would say within ten miles or so. You know, you can you can get along. Now, you guys are out there, and my friend Ed, who was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, lives out there. I'm pretty inevitable that I'm going to visit Los Angeles at some time in the next couple of years. I just don't know when, because we, yeah, we haven't thought about when we're going to go back there. Also, travel right now is That's what I mean. That's difficult. <laughs> that's a whole nother conversation. Now, computer vision brings to mind many different things. It has nothing mm-hmm. to do with success. I'm just curious. What are your thoughts on the singularity? <laughs> wow all right all we're right. getting into it man we're getting Get, into getting it into it <laughs> first of all before i just drop the word singularity here i am assuming that everybody is familiar with the term mm-hmm. the singularity please explain what the singularity is and tell me how you feel about it <laughs> so so singularity is a concept i think mostly invented or popularized at least by kurzweil the the idea is that once we have software that can design new and better software or in the hardware realm once you have robots that can build better robots at that point the pace of progress will rapidly increase because now you have a program writes a better program then that better program writes an even better program and the increase of progress will just be exponential and we have no idea what what comes then the terminator that's like the hollywood version of that right (laughs) yeah there are many people who think about this that are thinking much deeper than me. So I'm just putting out my opinions here. I think a lot of Kurzweil's predictions historically not correct. Okay. Um, so 
It's not something that you think about while you're uh, working on making computers see. No, no, <laughs> no. It's it's. I think we're still pretty far from that. Yeah, especially on the hardware side. Especially, sure. Like you see some of the some of the Boston Dynamics robots are kind of like dancing and now doing parkour. Like there was a very cool video a few weeks ago. But oftentimes, it's also still hard for a robot to open a door. A lot of the robotics research is just concerned with how do I correctly pick up a cup Mm -hmm. and has been like that for a long time. I I think especially in the hardware realm, sure, I'd be open to surprises, but I don't see any sort of explosion of capabilities. Yeah. Of course, you, you have like these you know, systems that are maybe non-humanoid, whatever you have. That's the thing. Drones with weapons on them. Exactly. like that. Not even just drones. You talk about Boston Dynamics. Did you see that Black Mirror episode with the, the robot dog that looks remarkably like the Boston Dynamics dog robot? I don't think I've seen, seen that one. It is brutal. It is terrifying. Anyway, check it out. But also on a lighter level in, in the movie uh, Interstellar, mm-hmm. the robot TARS hmm yeah the the little like he's like a block shape-shifting block yeah like that was kind of the coolest rope one of the coolest robots i think i've ever seen because he wasn't humanoid at all and he wasn't trying yeah. to pick up the cup but the original application for that r- robot was supposedly military i i don't know how that would have worked but i'm sure he was lethal because you know when he sprung to action he was really fast but i like the idea that this this guy this intelligent machine was completely non-humanoid mm-hmm. and completely functional in a completely different way. Yeah. Like who who cares if a robot can walk upstairs like a man can? Well, I think the the point is if you want a robot that's truly general purpose in the home or whatever and that inhabits the same environment that we do, then it probably makes sense that, you know, all of our stuff is is designed to be used with fingers. So it probably makes sense that the robot also has fingers. But R2-D2 has a little probe that juts into a, he jacks in. Yeah, and and in the prequels, he also had little like jet engines to make him float. He did. That was weird. I'm not sure how I feel about that. And he forgot about those in the later movies. (laughs) Silly robot droid. But I think that's one reason to look into humanoid robots, just to like have them populate the same areas that we do but absolutely i mean you're right in a you know in a sense a, a dishwasher is a robot like in a dishwasher is actually a very well working robot because it does exactly what it's supposed to do it does one thing really well well most of the time it does it well <laughs> mostly one one side is sort of the science fiction storytelling where of course you want something that maybe fills humans with some sort of existential dread and on the other side you have you have the commercial application where you say you have you have a system that automates some process and does that really well sure okay so how about elon musk and self-driving cars Mm -hmm. i always find it interesting that every time that there's a mishap with a self-driving car it makes big news yeah i don't know how many times it's happened what the percentage is but it feels like you never hear about a car accident unless it's with a self-driving car. I know. I think I think it's actually detrimental. Yeah. Probably if we were to I mean I I don't exactly know, but if we were to deploy even the current state of self-driving cars in a large scale, it would solve traffic. <laughs> well, it it would make a lot of things better, right? <laughs> because people have this danger of it's basically some somebody's injured or killed because of a decision made by a computer that's sort of the thing that that freaks people out and it and it is it's it's a legit concern but how many exactly but it's sort of how much is that blown out of proportion 
compared to danger of traffic in general. Again, I don't I don't know the exact numbers. If you know account just for the amount for the number of self-driving cars versus number of other cars, but I would still assume it's pretty small. It's pretty it's pretty small. So I think there is this somewhat sad cultural bias. What's unsettling is that it's it's kind of something that's not understandable for people. Look at airplane crashes. People are way more scared of airplane crashes than of car crashes. Irrationally so. And one one reason is because, so number one, when they're in the car, they feel in control. And they also think you can understand other drivers. If you're sitting in an airplane, you're not a pilot. And most people don't understand the aerodynamics. So you don't know. You're not in control and you don't know what's happening. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it so terrifying. The self-driving car thing is very similar to that. Because if somebody doesn't see you on the on the road and crashes into you, you know what happened. The average person doesn't understand how is the self-driving car perceiving the environment? How's the planner going? Like You don't understand what goes wrong for that crash to happen. And I think that's what makes it so unsettling. There's something bad and you don't know where it comes from. I don't think there's any need to get into too many of the anecdotes, but one of the stories I heard was a, a guy died behind the wheel and the car just kept going and then it jackknifed <laughs> into some truck or something. And I'm laughing because it just sounds so ridiculous. And it's a legit concern. But if the guy was driving and he died behind the wheel, at the very least, he would have smashed that car up. Who knows if he was on the freeway, it could have gone exactly the same way. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are already subway systems in some cities that I think are completely automated. And I realize that they're on rails and that's a little different. But like, I think in, in Milan or something, there's a completely automated subway system. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But if they can sense oncoming trains and people on the platform and, and all that mm -hmm. stuff, I think it's really interesting technology. And I, I really like the idea that drivers could be removed from this situation because I think that in general, that makes it safer. I'm also not an expert. Maybe one, one more thing to add to this whole point I, I brought up before with the understanding thing. I think yep. What also adds to that is once there are explanations of when certain things went wrong, these are explanations that for us as humans are stupid. <laughs> this car crashed into the truck because the truck was painted white and the car didn't see that, right? <laughs> Which is something that, that again, like... A human if, can't relate like, to. If you, if you don't know the whole like vision algorithms that are going on inside there, like that car obviously is dumb and I don't want it to drive around because it makes a whole bunch of other mistakes. That's kind of this difficulty of, I guess, casting these certain AI concepts like in our human perceptual framework. Our common sense tells us there's a big truck on the road. Don't drive into it. But the car doesn't have that. Might be a weakness, but on might also come with some strength. So what are some of the things that you've worked on with computer vision? I worked on a bunch of different things. During during my PhD, I worked mostly in motion estimation. What would be the application for that? It's pretty low level. So there's a bunch of applications that build on that. For example, self-driving cars. Let's say you have two or three frames of a video. Mm -hmm. You want to kind of compute where does each pixel of the first frame move in the second frame. Okay. So you want kind of this dense field of, of motion information that tells you how is the image deforming. And so then there are you know, a bunch of difficulties with that. Like, what do you do when there's motion blur? You know, when all your pixels are smeared together, what do you do when, when a pixel is visible in one frame but becomes occluded in the next frame? Like, how do you know where it goes? Right. What happens if you just have a white wall? And you have a pixel in the center of the white wall. Well, it's white. And all the pixels around it are also white. So if in the next frame you just search for the white pixel, well, you know, you have a gazillion possible matches. So how do you, you know, 
that that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. it's it's very low level because then you get this this motion field as an output, and then you know you can do a ton of things on on this on this motion field. Like you can do three reconstruction, you can do action recognition, deciding whether somebody is juggling or dancing, for example. Right, um, right. You could kind of separate foreground from background. Let's say you have you have some sort of textured background and a person in front of it. If you just look at a single image, it's very hard to decide well which which image edges are the edges of the person versus which image edges are just because of the background texture. Wow. But now if you compute the motion field, well, the background doesn't move at all, so it's all flat. You kind of remove the texture. Mm-hmm. And now it's easy to separate things from each other. A lot of sort of stuff in that in that direction. You talking about the pixels and, and, and these sort of things that are involved with it makes me think about consumer electronics and how there seems to be this arms race for megapixels and cameras mm-hmm. and 8K televisions. Everything gets bigger and bigger and, and people are thinking, you know, why would you want an 8K television? You can't even buy an 8K movie, which I guess if you're hooking up a computer or gaming or whatever, maybe there's an application for it. But it makes me just wonder if the only reason these things are coming out at such an alarming rate isn't necessarily because of customer demand. It's because of trickle down from other applications that companies are working on because they need sensors and readouts that are detailed enough to notice that one pixel or to to spot that one pixel. So since it already exists, they want to make it cheaper. So how do you make it cheaper? You sell it to everybody in the form of an AK television or a, you know, 100 megapixel camera or whatever. Well, <laughs> what yeah. your thoughts on that? <laughs> my, my thoughts on that? Well, I think mostly it's marketing. You want to have a TV with some number that's larger than the number of the TV next to you. Right. I think in terms of the computer vision image understanding part, the images usually don't have these resolutions. No, they don't. It doesn't matter. No. It's you know, it's a memory problem because all uh, of a sudden your image now is huge. It's so big, and you know you have to fit it on your GPU, and it gets very impractical very fast. I don't think that's where necessarily high resolutions come from. Once you said that, I felt kind of stupid because then I remembered if you look at YouTube, there are all these videos like you can't even see 4K. So like the human brain doesn't even process images in that high resolution. It it makes sense. You would need a tremendously powerful processor and also a ton of RAM to make it a, a reality. Yeah. Of course, technology will progress and things yeah. will get better. But at some point, it's sort of a, a logarithmic fall off. Make a lot of progress and the end user impact kind of becomes. What are some other applications of computer vision that maybe we aren't thinking of? I don't know if you want to talk about the surveillance state or the military. We don't need to talk about that because everybody knows it exists. You can just go to YouTube for that. Of course, it's like, you know, things that, that explicitly have cameras on them, surveillance or, or cars or mm-hmm. your phone, swivel your phone around and then you get an actual 3D model of your room. And now you can put your Ikea furniture in there to see if it fits, stuff like that. The whole Pokemon Go that you have oh, yeah. sort of augmented reality. Sure. Have, it's really everything where, it, where it's about visual understanding of the world. Another part is also just in terms of being able to engage with large amounts of data. Yeah. Image search, for example. Mm-hmm. All these images are out there and you want to find one, well, you can just go to Google image search and point a label and probably the result that you get is often based on what the computer thinks is in the image, not necessarily how the image is called or what the file name is or what the surrounding text is, so on. So I think that image and video search could probably be better than it is right now. Upload filters. 
Ah. Whether Facebook allows you to upload a video or not. If it thinks that you're some sort of murderer who streams a bad rampage, is it able to detect? Hot dog, not hot dog. Yes. (laughs) The whole Apple fiasco now. Oh, yeah, right, right. In the past few weeks, right? Again, application of computer vision. Very botched rollout, but it is an application. And then, of course, you have like surveillance and face recognition. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. That that stuff is the obvious yeah. stuff. I mean, there are mm-hmm. already a million Yahoo's online yeah. talking about. I, I mean, I think ups and downs. I think that there there are a lot of sort of niche applications that we usually don't think about, especially if you have sort of business to business. If you're an insurance company, if someone has water damage, they just take a photo of you, and then you do the all appraisal and everything automatically. That's that's kind of an application that that has been around for a while but if you're a microbiologist or or even just like a lab worker at a at a medical practice put your blood sample under your microscope and you want it to automatically count the cells in it that's cool instead of having to do it by hand i live in rotterdam rotterdam's a giant harbor i would imagine there are huge applications for in a harbor I'm sure there's a lot of the the container yeah just just kind of making sure that the container go where they should go and mm-hmm. there are enough containers and so on. So I think there there's a ton of these little applications that the consumers don't really think about and yet are super useful. On the other hand, I also think there are a lot of applications where our first thought would be yeah, let's you know, let's put a camera on it and computer vision, but it's ultimately better to just put a little RFID tag on it. Cars are a good example. It's sort of this this debate, do we need some sort of radar system in the car mm-hmm. or can we all do it with cameras? Because obviously we drive cars and we don't have a radar. We only have our eyes. There are also a lot of applications where where we, based on our human existence, would mm-hmm. would accept, yeah, sure, you know, you use your computer eyes and you do this thing, but there are actually other sensors that are made way more appropriate. And more efficient. Yeah. All right. Speaking of being more efficient, what's your take on the CAPTCHA? You mean like the the internet? Show me all the pictures of the fire hydrant. It's great. You're you know you're. No, it's not great. No, <laughs> well, <laughs> no, it's it's not great, especially since you're basically providing training data for free for image recognition algorithms. So that's true. That's not that's not a myth. That's what it's for. Yeah, absolutely. It's for identifying stoplights. <laughs> it's for training these systems. I don't like it. But I think I think my dislike comes primarily from that knowledge. You you feel kind of exploited. At, at least pay me like 10 cents every time I have to fill out one of your stupid You're things. being paid in safety. Ah, great. I'm being paid in safety for this other website. But also for your future driving experience, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I guess it's one of these things you kind of learn to live with. Yeah, it's just part of life. There are lots of things that I don't like. This is just one of them. But it's getting less and less, right? I don't know. Is it? Maybe I was just more annoyed a few years ago. Now I'm just like, eh, I can handle it. It's a small inconvenience and a series of other small inconveniences. Is there something else you'd like to say? I think we can wrap things up. Anything you'd like to get off your chest? Anything you'd like to share? Oh, gosh. I don't think people should be afraid of AI. Just going back to the singularity question, I guess. Did you like that question? <laughs> I think it's a good question. I'm kind of going going back and forth at this because in one sense, it it's sort of a fear that's very Hollywood driven. I watch a lot of movies. It's easy to dismiss. On the other side, I also feel that as engineers, we oftentimes don't have the education to think about these things, which I think is actually pretty bad, especially now when computer vision algorithms are rolled out so widely that 
that most people working on them don't have the tools to think about ethics. So how do you bake that into the curriculum for future computer scientists? I don't know. American universities are doing a better job at that than at least German universities. Oh, really? Well, because from what I've seen, you're taking a bunch of classes that are more general, right? Oh, okay, like okay, and okay. Yeah. Things, and you don't do that in like a German university. Right, all right. So that makes sense. you kind of declare your major when you enroll, and then that's it. And then you focus. And then you focus, yeah, but you know, you never hear about ethics. And so I think that's... But how do ethics work if your project becomes sentient? At that point, it's not really about your ethics. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. Although maybe if you're, you know, more aware of it, you would design your program a little differently. You can throw in the, the Asimov algorithm. Something like that. I think a lot of these things that we think about in these like more soft terms, like, you know, ethics and what should an algorithm do and so on. Mm -hmm. At least for some of these things, they have some specific manifestation in the programs yeah one example is if you this whole idea of networks that generate photorealistic images of faces i forgot to talk about that go ahead <laughs> yeah i've worked on that for the past three years <laughs> anyways the question is always okay how can we make sure that we have a large degree of diversity we don't just want to generate white tech bro dudes but we kind of want to you know generate all kinds of skin colors and genders and so on mm -hmm. and want to have that balanced out and it turns out that there are actually some specific functions used in the code that when you do all the calculations, just prefer white faces uh, or light faces. If you look at sort of skin color and now if you look at the distribution, you have sort of a multimodal distribution. If you only assess the quality of your algorithm by the mean, then you would always diverge to this light skinned or lightish skinned mean, not totally, but... Mm -hmm instead of actually capturing the multimodality. So that's something where you say this idea of diversity, it's not just some fluffy thing, but it actually has implications in code that we need to be aware of. Wow. There's some great stuff being done on this front of like bias and, and ethics and so on. I think the field as a whole could and should take it more serious than they do at the moment. I'm going to leave that to you. Yeah, well, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I was joking with a friend today saying, this guy is a doctor of computer vision and he's taking time out to talk to me, an unemployed former art school, <laughs> art school guy, <laughs> to talk on his podcast. What a wonderful world we live in. I, well, just great that it's possible. It's pretty cool, right? I'm pretty happy about it. So yeah, thank you for coming on my podcast. Thanks for having me. And um, yeah, I'll see you in Los Angeles, probably. That was Jonas. Since talking to him, I've been thinking about nature versus nurture a bit. I really like what he said about his parents not pressuring him and also not rewarding him for schoolwork. Achievement is its own reward, much like success is not a point on the map. It's about how you get there. That sounds kind of corny, but it also rings true like so many of the other things that Jonas said. I really liked what he said about it never being too late to find a mentor, and I was kicking myself when I realized I should have talked about autofocus and cameras rather than the resolution of televisions and camera chips, because it seems to me that in high-end cameras, the real race is how good can your autofocus be, and at this stage of the game, it's pretty damn good. And then there's all the nerdy computer doctor stuff, which I love. 
Oh, by the way, I tried to tally it all up while I was editing, and I think we said Doctor of Computer Vision seven times during the conversation, but I could have missed one or two. That's pretty much it. Check out at Feel Free to Deviate on Instagram and go to feelfreetodeviate.com if you like websites. The next episode features Naomi. She runs a children's clothing line and she loves cryptocurrency. You can hear all about it in two weeks. Thanks for listening and I hope you have a great unspecified unit of time. Mm-hmm.